Hello everyone and welcome on The Barricades. Uh, this is your most exciting political show produced by Eastern European journalists and academics and I am your host, Maria Cernat. Uh, and uh, with me I have um, Oksana Duchkak. She's a sociologist and an activist from Ukraine. She specializes in the research of gender inequality, and she currently works for the Center of Social and Labor Research, an NGO based in Ukraine. Uh, she was a resident of Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, but she had to flee due to the current circumstances, and she is now speaking from the western part of Ukraine. Uh, welcome to our show. Hello. So, um, of course, um, the situation is pretty bleak. Uh, can you give us an assessment? What is the situation now on the ground? Uh, just today, I heard you had two air alarms and you had to go out of your house, even though you are in the western part of the country. So what is the situation right now? Well, the western part of the country is relatively safe, but only relatively because just today, uh, early in the morning, the airport was bombed in Ivano-Frankivsk and in Lutsk. Uh, and in Lutsk, four people died uh, after the shelling. So, um, yeah, it's relatively safe, but unfortunately, some uh, rockets are flying from Belarusian territory. And um, the, the city I'm currently based now, it was also under attack on the first day of the war, uh, also because it also has a small airport, but until now it's um, re relatively safe. So most people who are fleeing other parts of the country which are under heavy shelling and uh, in the cities which are blocked and bombed constantly, they're trying to flee to western part of the country and uh, further some of them go to across the border to Poland, to Slovakia, to Hungary and other bordering countries. But also a lot of people stay in western Ukraine as it is still uh, relatively safe now. Uh, in general, the, the worst situation is in those blocked cities, especially in Mariupol and Kharkiv and Chernihiv now and some other smaller towns. Uh, because they are cycled, basically, and people cannot flee, uh, and uh, they are heavily bombed. Especially Mar Mariupol now, it's like a humanitarian catastrophe for, for many days already. And there are still something like 300,000 people there who cannot leave the town because uh, the humanitarian corridors are constantly shelled. Uh, especially in Mariupol. So, so some other towns, they try to evacuate people, uh, more or less, uh, they do it, uh, they have some success uh, in one day uh, and le less success in another day. But in Mariupol, it's totally blocked, like they couldn't evacuate people, almost none, none people were evacuated, uh, only those who tried to flee by themselves, and it is very dangerous, and uh, like civilian cars are bombed and attacked. Uh, so the situation is awful, uh, especially in Mariupol and partially in Kharkiv, Chernihiv and some other smaller towns. Yes, uh, this is a very unfortunate situation. And um, um, uh, you say that currently the western part of uh, Ukraine is, is safe, but there are rockets flying from Belarus. Is this confirmed? Is Belarus an active part in this or is this just uh, your intuition 
Uh, it's not an intuition. It's um, I mean, it's not Belarusian rockets. It's Russian rockets, but they uh -huh. are based in Belarus, which, according to humanitarian international law, means that Belarus is part of the conflict because it provides its territory for a Russian army to attack uh, Ukraine. So it's confirmed, um, definitely. And tell me, how was it for you? Did you expect something like this to happen? No. <laughs> uh, as uh, I think most of Ukrainians, we didn't expect nothing like that. Uh, the, some days before the war started, there was this outrageous uh, speeches by uh, Putin, by the Russian president, by Russian president. Uh, and it was, of course, kind of tense uh, situation. But uh, personally, I thought that they would just um, lead the, the army officially to um, a separatist republic. So they will officially dislocate their army there. And that's it. Uh, my worst case scenario was that they will try also to capture a um, government-controlled part of uh, Luhansk and Donetsk region. So, the so they will try to, uh, to reach the administrative border, uh, borders of those regions, not, not the, those borders which are controlled by separatists, but to move them further like, to the administrative border of the region. That was my worst case scenario. <laughs> And of course, yeah, very few people expected that it will end up uh, like this with a full-scale invasion. So I was totally shocked and many, many people were totally shocked. And uh, the first day it still looked like they, well, they, at first day they tried to attack like military infrastructure and of course it still caused many casualties. Uh, but later when uh, their blitzkrieg like uh, obviously failed, uh, they started to attack civilians and like um, uh, many of the attacks were done on purpose. So this is, um, <laughs> I, 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 this seems surreal, this seems surreal. So you felt compelled, of course, to leave Kiev because there is shelling and there is, so good thing you you had a place to go, isn't it? Because yeah. there are so many people that basically are not lucky to have relatives in the western part mm -hmm. of the country, so they had to flee elsewhere. But uh, tell me, how do you think how do you think things will evolve given the current situation? What is um, the best scenario and the worst scenario? Uh, it's really, really, really hard to predict. You know, like many people, and I personally, we are kind of uh, uh, like a pendulum moving between an optimism and total pessimism. Uh, it's like an emotional swing all the time. And um, sometimes, I mean, I'm trying to follow some anal analytics uh, provided on the ground and provided by some foreign experts. And uh, the, the scenarios are very different. And uh, of course, I'm trying to believe in a better uh, scenario. But the most realistic is now that at some point, the, 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 they will start, um, like the, the active phase of the conflict will stop. But it also will mean uh, the, the question is which part of Ukraine will be under occupation at that point. And also the question is, well, not actually the question, but obviously that it won't mean that the war is over. It will mean only that it will stop to, for, for, I don't know, for months, maybe for a year or something. But um, I'm sure that even in this scenario, they will try to continue their offense at some point. 
unfortunately that's how it looks now uh, in a more realistic scenario i would say uh, of course there are some better case scenario but they are so uh, un, un, i mean the situation is so unpredictable because um, me personally i don't know maybe it's uh, uh, too optimistic but i still hope that there will be some uh, elite rebellion in russia i don't believe there will be grassroots rebellion it's quite obvious now there will be not so there are a lot of people like many people still protesting and repressed uh, on the like very heavily but um, the the scenario of grassroots rebellion it doesn't look realistic so the there is still some hope for elite rebellion but there is i mean this is a scenario we cannot influence in any way so it's just some kind of very very small hope i don't know and still a, a very unpredictable scenario because uh, if the even if there will be change of elite it doesn't mean that it's like full stop and they will retreat or something but at least uh, it means that um, maybe those people who are not satisfied with um, for their personal reasons mostly economic reasons i mean oligarchs and other part of russian elite are not satisfied with what is going on will uh, size power and for for this reason there is hope that maybe they will do something different but uh, it's still i mean very very unpredictable and uh, like murky future yeah. yes i think it's very sad where we end up in the situation where we expect a different clique of oligarchs to take power and maybe we expect different kind of bosses, maybe more humane ones, not a grassroots uh, a rebellion. But tell us yeah. more about your leaders, because uh, maybe they should have handled this better. Maybe they were over-optimistic. Uh, what? Maybe they didn't see it coming or what was, or maybe they don't care. What do you think? Uh, it's very hard to say now what was going on on the level of elite in Ukraine. Now they are saying that uh, they kind of envisioned that the, uh, there can be war, but also they didn't expect it to be the full-scale war, uh, which is a uh, kind of thing which I can believe because nobody expected it. Like, I mean, very few people are seriously uh, talked about uh, like full-scale invasion, like very few of them. So it's uh, hard to say what was there. I think they were at least partially captured by surprise. Uh, but they now are saying that some preparation were still done. And uh, I'm also tending to believe that because otherwise um, the Blitzkrieg would be successful maybe. So if it was not successful, then the still army and uh, government was somehow prepared to, to at least partially. And the thing is that there was this huge present, uh, well, like in, in uh, reverse sense, of course, uh, but at least, uh, well, partially, which played on the side of Ukraine um, in this uh, awful, uh, awful situation, that Russian government definitely made a lot of mistakes at the beginning. Now they're trying to kind of uh, take this into account, but they're, uh, they're, they're prediction of their, their um, tactics of Blitzkrieg, it was total failure. And it gave uh, Ukrainian government and society time to, to like consolidate the, the defense and everything. 
as, as about saying that they don't care or something, I'm not uh, really ready to say that. And uh, um, it's also obvious that um, there can be, of course, different attitudes and different um, perspectives on different level of government. But what is also obvious, like that, uh, many people on the level of local government they are doing their best, like to to uh, support people and protect, defend the cities. And also, what the government on the central level uh, the, doing, uh, they are quite doing quite a lot. Um, the, the thing which I'm probably the most skeptical in what the government is doing is the demand to close the sky, of course, which is now like extremely popular in Ukraine. So they are demanding Western countries and NATO precisely uh, to close the sky over, uh, over Ukraine. This is definitely not a realistic scenario. And the only reason I think they are, I mean, at least what I can explain, the, the, um, how I can explain their actions, is that they are demanding like uh, the most to, to, to receive the best offer of, of, support, uh, of support from Western countries. So they are demanding the, hi the highest uh, possible uh, support, which is impossible, but they're kind of pushing for it to, to, to get as much as possible. Uh, as for, uh, I mean, whether they are uh, caring or not, um, most part of the central government is staying inside the country. They are staying in Kyiv. I'm, I mean, for me as a person um, who I used to be always skeptical about what a government is doing and uh, perceiving is critically, um, it's really hard to, to, to change also my perception now and to, to, to change my um, attitude now, which doesn't mean there is nothing to criticize them for. Of course, there is a lot, for example, on the level of humanitarian assistance, a lot of things are, do, are done by volunteers, by uh, initiatives, by organizations. And uh, um, I feel the lack of efforts to consolidate this support on the side of government, of local governments, for example, also. So they are kind of leaving part of work to be done by volunteers, by organizations and in initiatives. They are doing something by themselves also, of course, a lot. But uh, there is no this kind of effort to consolidate this reaction on a humanitarian crisis, for example, or to, to assist um, people who are fleeing in kind of consolidated and coordinated manner. So there are a lot of things to criticize, of course. Uh, but in general, like I cannot say that government uh, on local level or mostly uh, and on central level that they do not care. They, of course, make mistakes. And uh, I think we even don't know about all the mistakes they're doing because the situation now is really hard to analyze it uh, from some kind of critical perspective, or any perspective, because it's very dynamic and so on. Uh, so, yeah. Um, so I think that um, I cannot say that they do not care. It's like um, also one of the things which probably was total failure of Russian government in their calculation. To anticipate, to anticipate. Yeah, like, uh, I mean, uh, I was telling this before that I'm, I'm shocked how unprofessional their, uh, their military was in predicting the scenarios, how like uh, their... Um, 
intelligence, like uh, the intelligence service of Russia, how failed, uh, how, how, how their actions failed totally in, in understanding what was happening in Ukraine before and how the society and everything, how the structures and institutions will react. So their calculation was that they will come and people will like just give up and let them in, which was kind of, I mean, uh, people who know what is what has been happening in these countries for all these years, I mean, they could not make such a stupid prediction, but they did, and they calculated on it, and they, they failed totally, which is, uh, of course, partially kind of gives some optimism, but it's also very, has a very drastic circumstances for civilian population, because after they understood that this scenario failed, they started to shell the cities like heavily. Yeah, and targeting especially also like residential areas and schools and hospitals and everything like to to make people like to terrorize people basically to make them flee to make them like willing to to give up and everything and it is uh, like a very uh, you know like I, I don't like the the term terrorism or something but it's a uh, what usually is called terrorism like terrorizing a civilian population this is very unfortunate and um, it is also my belief that unfortunately they did not take into account how committed the Ukrainians were to enter NATO. But at the same time... They were not. They were not committed. That's true also. The Ukrainian population did not, uh, the majority of population did not support uh, the idea of joining NATO until January. And in January, when the, all these narratives started to escalate on Russian side, like denying the statehood of Ukraine, like the history of Ukraine, everything, that this is not a real state or something like that. And people felt like the society felt threatened by, by this rhetoric. And so the popularity of the idea of joining NATO started to grow very fast. And according this to... This is recent, very interesting because... Yeah. I was on the idea that maybe it was, um, I mean, the Ukrainians wanting to join NATO was a done deal. But uh, you say that they were not so prone to embark on that mission. What, now, why was it? Was, were they afraid that they would come across the interests of Russia? Or were they not just interested in partially, that? Partially, maybe partially also this. And also maybe some, a lot of people didn't see a point. They didn't want to. to so this is what, that was the question where society was very polarized. Like uh, usually, like traditionally, Western part of the country were more supportive of the idea of joining EU or joining NATO and so on. So kind of moved to this traditional geopolitical Western trajectory. And the eastern and southern part of the country were traditionally opposing to opposed to this um, uh, to this idea this idea. Though their support in all parts of the country, the support of these ideas was uh, slowly growing since 2014, since the annexation of Crimea and since the war, the war started in eastern part of the country. But it was still not the majority of the population, especially if we are speaking about eastern and southern part of the country. But uh, it started to grow slowly in the beginning of this year. And uh, according to recent polls, uh, after, already after the war started, uh, the majority of population now support this idea of joining NATO and joining EU. And the, the, the most uh, uh, sharp 
increase of support happened in, in eastern and southern part of the country. Which was and this is very interesting because there are a lot of Russians that, and tell me, maybe I will sound an ignorant, but to me, it seems like, let me explain how it is with the minorities in Romania, and then you, you will understand better my question, because I don't want this to sound uh, ignorant or offensive to you. But look, in Romania, we have the Hungarian minority. And we have two districts in the western part of the country where 90% of the population is Hungarian, meaning what? That they have a language, a language that is very different from Romanian. It is from a different linguistic family. Um, and then there is also this ethnic um, division in a way that they do not marry usually Romanians and they kept, you know, their how should I say, ethnic, and the division was kept, and they are there like some sort of different part of uh, Romania. They are Romanian citizens, we get along, I mean, there are no problems, but just to explain the, the structure, you know, of the ethnic. But from what I gather, you and Russians are not so different. I mean, your languages are not so different. You have many relatives. You have a lot of mixed uh, families where you have a Ukrainian husband and a Russian uh, wife and uh, uh, the other way around. And you have relatives all over Russia. So it is even more how should I say, tragic in these circumstances. Not that I would support, you know, any kind of ethnic, uh, you know, conflicts because I think this is pure stupidity and uh, violence and tribalism and all the rest. But I think it's more tragic. Spe talk a little bit on, on the structure of Ukrainians and, and Russians because uh, maybe it's just my intuition, but it seems you are closer Right. Um, I would add first that we also have a quite a big Hungarian minority in Transcarpathian region. In, in Romania. The far, yeah, in the, in the far western part of Ukraine and also with their language. And uh, I mean, uh, some in some uh, towns, uh, this, all the signs are in Hungarian, for example. But speaking about uh, Russian, yes, it's a, it's a very tragic development in this kind of situation now. Uh, because uh, for it, there are a lot of Russians living in Ukraine and uh, yes, a lot of Ukrainians living in Russian uh, and there are a lot of mixed families. And uh, yeah, it's true that um, the, uh, the languages are very close and people, I mean, in Ukraine usually understand Russia, Russian perfectly and people in Russia, I mean, they can understand Ukrainian easily. So there is no language barrier basically. Uh, and uh, what I heard, but I mean, sorry, I, I, I have to intervene. It's like maybe Romanian and Italian because they are very much alike closer. and closer, closer even closer, closer than that. Yes. The um, Belarusian, uh, Russian, and Ukrainian languages are very similar, as uh, and also, for example, Polish and Ukrainian languages quite similar, but a little bit far. It, but the, the thing is that they are very close. I mean, it's, uh, um, I mean, all the Ukrainians understand Russian language from, uh, from childhood, basically. A lot of like TV programs and uh, I don't know, music and everything, it, it is in Russian language. A lot of Ukrainians speak Russian. 
Russian as a first language. And uh, that was one of the rhetoric of uh, Putin, that he is kind of rescuing Russian-speaking population of Ukraine. But uh, for some, I mean, totally wrecked reasons uh, to, to rescue the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine, he is heavily bombing the most Russian-speaking cities of Ukraine, like Mariupol and Kharkiv, where the predominant popul predominantly population as their first language, they are speaking Russian, and they are now under Russian bombs. So this is like tragic in many, many, many dimensions. And also speaking about mixed families and everything. And uh, a lot of Ukrainians are living in Russia for years, like still from 90s or even earlier. Uh, for example, um, I have I, I don't have this kind of connections, but I'm, um, I'm like my uh, stepmother, for example, my mother-in-law, sorry, uh, her brother is living in St. Petersburg and he is an ex-military uh, person. Uh, and from the very beginning of the war, their communication was very sad, I would say. So he he was denying. Uh, he was saying it's not true what you are telling me that I mean she is writing to him from Ukraine that they are shelling the cities and killing people and he says it's not true I mean you're lying it's it's your government is lying to you it's not Putin who are lying to us it's a Ukrainian government who are like faking all this so this is very tragic. And what I hear from people around, it's very common scenario. So people who are staying in Russia, many of them are partially, I mean, at least some of them are Ukrainians also by ethnicity. They're kind of under, under this pressure of Russian propaganda. They don't see the reality of what is happening on the ground. That leads to very uh, tragic developments in families when people stop talking to each other and block each other in messengers and and everything because and and it's understandable i mean because the, the level of tragedy is very high and people are angry and people are hateful and i mean i cannot judge it right now because it's it's really impossible to 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 not feel these emotions when you see what is happening and i think uh, we will have this problem even if we ex predict that the war will be over at some point the the relations yes. between yes. ukrainians and russians are spoiled and for a very very long time unfortunately and the level of uh, xenophobia on both sides would be very high and this is nothing we can do about it at this point unfortunately Yes, I would say that this this is another tragic aspect of the situation to see people who are so close and yet so divided and over what exactly? What is the end game here? What is the, the, the thing that maybe Ukrainians felt that they were denied the independence, autonomy, um, agency in the final aftermath and they felt somehow betrayed? and uh, spoken to like children and they wanted to assert their independence or what was it? I mean, what broke the camel's back in your opinion? Was the war, did I mean? Um... That they but don't feel that. like but, uh, before that. Before that, the situation was very different. It was, of course, not. It was developing in this direction slowly uh, since 2014, at least. 
but it was developing very slowly and not steadily. So some people, for example, changed their opinion at some point. So it was a kind of, um, I would say the landscape was very different and uh, it could go in, in any direction. If we could imagine the situation in the east of Ukraine would lead to some kind of um, uh, constant ceasefire, like there will be no more shooting, no more people dying, then that, uh, I mean, would lead to some kind of normalization of relationships between uh, between the two countries, between the societies, people, governments, whatever. But it didn't happen. Like it went in a totally opposite direction. So at this point, why do like, you think that is? Why do you think that is? Because I know that Zelensky was uh, welcomed with uh, such high hopes for peace, cooperation. What mm, happened? Mm, what happened? You mean why? Why? Why Putin attacked? Or what happened? No. Why was it that he didn't manage to to establish some sort of relation and to to really militate for peace before this tragic situation occurred? Uh, unfortunately, I can say that from what we are, I mean, what I'm seeing in retrospective and what uh, some people who, who deal with this topic and analyze it, uh, they have been saying it for quite a while, um, it looks now that Putin never, I mean, he was preparing for the, he have been preparing, has been preparing this war and invasion. You cannot do it in a week or something. So it, they were preparing it for at least some months or maybe even years, at least uh, uh, taking this scenario serious. Maybe they were not actively working on it, but they were taking this scenario serious and kind of making some preparation on the ground. So what um, I see now and what smart people uh, who analyze this um, processes, diplomatic process and, and political processes before the war, uh, that they are say, uh, saying that uh, Putin was never uh, aiming at peace, peaceful resolution and uh, was never ready and uh, accepting um, compromise which could lead to uh, to some stable solutions. I'm not saying that Ukrainian governments did no mistakes. They did a lot, but uh, at, at least at this point, it looked now that a uh, um, peaceful scenario um, um, which would not damage the integrity and sovereignty of Ukraine was never in, Putin, uh, in Putin's plan. Uh, his plan was something totally different. Again, I'm not saying that Ukrainian government did no mistakes. They did quite a lot. And uh, like uh, Zelensky was elected on the prospect of uh, peace and uh, yes, peace exactly, fire. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Uh, but um, then his his strategy somehow uh, went in a little bit different direction, I would say. But why? But, why? Why do you think that is? Why? Why did it change? Some because I really say, had hope. Let me explain a little bit. I really hoped that he would be smart enough to somehow juggle with all these things that were on his shoulders in terms of international politics and keep give the impression to NATO that they would join, give the Russians impress, the impression that they would not join and navigate through these uh, very, very dangerous waters to prevent a catastrophe like this. And I really thought he would be smart enough, you know, to somehow appease everybody and keep Ukraine safe. But unfortunately... This is not what happened. Uh, what happened actually, like, so there was a double processes. On the one hand, there was um, 
kind of part of the society, the active part of the society was protesting against um, some kind of uh, concession on Ukrainian side. So there were protests um, organized against capitulations, how they called it. So uh, they were protesting against, against concession, but I'm uh, like, I'm not sure that uh, this played the main role. I think that some kind of internal struggle inside the, uh, the leading party uh, rather played a role. So people in the leading party, in Zelensky party, uh, probably, uh, I mean, part of them were also against some kind of concession and so on. So the, this, uh, this influenced the rhetoric of the uh, government and their action um, substantially. But you also, also should keep in mind that um, uh, here, like Ukrainian government, of course, they could do something differently, but there is no guarantee it would change anything. Because if you look what was mm -hmm. happening uh, on the, in eastern part of the country, you see that uh, basically, I mean, um, Russia was uh, steadily integrating the um, military, the law enforcement and the government and the economy of the separatist republic into their, like, military government and uh, economy and everything so the rhetoric that they were uh, willing to 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 go uh, into the direction of reintegration these territories into into ukraine into ukrainian controlled territory it's totally fake i mean they never were planning this and i think uh, like the governments of the separatist republic were also not taking this scenario seriously and the, all the rhetoric of the peaceful agreement like this minsk agreement um, yeah. Yes. before the war started was about reintegration of this territory so uh, on the level of paper on the level of diplomacy they were kind of saying that uh, the, this is what we are aiming at but what was happening and going on in the ground was something totally different so there should be also this also should be taken into account because if uh, in the kind of situation when the most powerful actor in this uh, constellation like Russia uh, they were uh, doing something totally opposite of course we can say that our government was also doing um, a lot of mistakes but if the most powerful actor was not uh, going into this uh, didn't have this plan of reintegrating of following the agreements well i mean yes i understand the result and uh, would have been uh, the same the same yeah unfortunately well so, yeah. yes please uh, go ahead and uh, tell us what you wanted because i interrupted you no no it's fine so if you have something more to share for me what do you think of Let's say you have an immense power right now. What would you do? First three things. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> That's a hard question. Um, I don't know. I would... I don't know. I don't have answer for that. Um, the only thing which can be done now is to support people. I don't know. Maybe I would... Um, that sounds very childish and very... <laughs> um, very strange but i would probably do my best for the for i don't know for putin to die <laughs> uh, but it's i mean uh, it's uh, something which of course i would not voice as a uh, when i analyze situation but that's something what i would voice when somebody asks me like what do you want to, what do you feel about it right now um but it, it's um yeah it's it's what i feel right now uh, and i understand that it won't solve the problem at 
like and maybe somebody worse will come because yes, that and, and, it's all, and all the people uh, all like the vertical of government is problematic uh, and which is which was all the tragic um, outcomes for Ukraine and also for Russian people in short-term perspective and in long-term perspective. So it's very very sad uh, development. And I uh, what I also feel like very bad about that I understand that even like the situation would uh, de-escalate now to to some acceptable point. I also not sure I can go uh, like I can. Um, uh, calmly go back to Kiev and live my life because when you are living in uh, in this kind of circumstances I mean I can I don't want to, to have one more morning like that when you wake up from explosions and you uh, again have to to flee and run away for, to like to save your children and everything it's uh, I, I understand that um, some very dramatic change should happen in Russia for for me to to live peacefully and calmly in this country unfortunately and I don't see this change coming in the nearest future which which is also very sad and hard and psychologically, uh, emotionally hard for many, many people in Ukraine now. Yes, I believe this is. I also thought a lot, what would I want? I would want the people who want war to go someplace and have their war and leave the rest of us alone because... Uh, what happens in Romania right now is rather tragic because you see this pro-war rhetoric that is really scary. And I would say, look, guys, I would feel a lot safer with somebody like a feminist uh, from Ukraine and a feminist from Russia and feminist allies from these countries than I would feel with a Romanian uh, calling for the death of all Russians and killing and, you know, you know what I mean? So, so this, the distinction for me is between those who want war and those who want peace in the final aftermath. And I would so much love to find, I know, a ground, a better ground to send them there, okay, with your planes, your tanks, do whatever, and then come to us and tell us what what's your conclusion. If there is a, anyone left, to do, you know, standing after they meet under these circumstances. Yes, it's very understandable, but what also a friend of mine, like a very good analyst, uh, Volodya Artyuk, recently wrote yes. on, uh, in his um, on his social uh, networks um, that now we also see a very tragic development of peace moment because now in Ukrainian context, in post-Soviet context, there is a very big difference between uh, saying that we are for peace and that we are against war. So uh, people, for example, in, uh, I don't know, Belarus and Russia who are kind of uh, just wants to go on living their normal life, but not affected by war directly, they're saying they are for peace. And people who are in Ukraine and suffering from this war, they're saying that they're against war which in this circumstances means a little bit different things. And uh, it's also uh, would be very interesting also to see how this development influences the international movement for peace. And for me also personally, I also have a very painful like reflections these days because all these years, me and uh, some people close to me, like in feminist cycles, we were uh, protesting against militarization and everything in Ukraine, uh, like uh, voicing this uh, concern that the society is uh, militarized and everything. 
And now we see that, uh, well, this militarization is probably which saved our life at some point. And it is also a very painful reflection, which also I understand that uh, I'm not kind of saying, oh, we, should, we shouldn't have done that, we shouldn't have said that or something. I understand that at that point, it would probably be the, the correct way of uh, talking about things. But also looking back from now, we also, I mean, I don't know how to speak about it further. And it's also the, the, the point where we have to find how to rethink the reality we are living in and how to continue doing things and saying things we believe in without uh, losing like touch with reality which is very painful very very dramatic very tragic and yeah for me it's also i mean i'm thinking about it for all these days and i understand that i have a chance to think about it because i don't have to uh, to sit under under the bombs falling on my head Yes, I think you're right. But at the same time, as a feminist, I, I think we should join in our effort. And I think the only way out is for us to join, I mean, Romanian feminists, Ukrainian feminists and Russian feminists, because we can only do this together. You cannot be anti-militaristic by yourself, unfortunately, because yeah, if the sure. other side is arming to their teeth, then you are they are going to come and kill you, right? You cannot... This is this has to be an international movement, and it also has to be for us to tell women to stop incentivize this heroic, you know, stance of men. And it has to do with a lot of things, but the key issue here is that we have to stand together, and it is only together in solidarity that we win because otherwise, you will just have two options your military protecting you from the russian military or have the russian military come and you have no protection that would be the options whereas mm -hmm. the third possibility would be that they will have you know no military and this has to be international uh, of course this is like the prisoner dilemma you know yes it's exactly that type But of thing that Everybody has to demilitarize because otherwise you're just handing your country, your life on a plate for the ones who do not want to, to be yeah, for But being realistic in these circumstances, I also understand that we don't have the third option at this point, uh, now at this moment. And I also like kind of um, follow this rhetoric of uh, many people, I mean, not mostly Western people, but not only, that they're saying, okay, we are going to support humanitarian um, part of like, of the, like <laughs> helping people uh, in humanitarian relief and refugees and everything, but we will no way support the Ukrainian army. And this is I mean, I'm grateful for them uh, to them too that they at least uh, support like the humanitarian part, and I'm not calling them to support military part. But also here on the ground, I'm thinking about that all those people were able to flee, uh, at least most of them safely, uh, because there was an army on the like protecting and giving them, providing them with corridor, like and uh, also the diplomacy and everything, of course. But I also understand that they won't be able to flee if there was uh, no defense. Which is again, I'm not saying that uh, I kind of. Uh, 
criticize those people or something, but uh, I also want to provide this perspective that uh, supporting mm -hmm. the humanitarian relief, which is extremely important now, and I'm so grateful to all the people around uh, in neighboring countries and in Western countries and all, all other countries who are doing that. But I'm also thinking about this dilemma, like, and uh, how... Um, so I don't know, like for, for me personally, it's a very hard time also in terms of reflections, which also means that they ha I have time for these reflections, luckily. Yes, yes. I think, thank you so much for, for joining the show. It is also a time of reflection for me as a feminist, because to tell you the truth, I don't like this new cult of Zelensky. I don't like this. They have the cult of Putin in Russia. Then you have the cult of Zelensky. And it's obviously something that has to go if we wa want to live in a safer world. As long as we praise all these war heroes, all this extraordinary man coming to save us, this is only going to lead to war because there will be a time when one of these extraordinary men will want to confront the other, you know, yeah. and it will be us who will pay the price, unfortunately. Yes, but uh, this is not something we can change in Ukraine now. I mean, uh, because... Yes, um, of course, of yeah. course. I mean, now is a done deal and we have to solve the situation. I was thinking on, on the long run that... Um, the ideal should be maybe an international peace movement and solidarity in and not fall in love with the army just because we are in, in dire circumstances, I would say, because in the final aftermath, I don't know if they are they their, our friends. Well, my, my husband is in army now. He okay. There, he, was, um, he went there voluntary to, to the um, military office. So it's also a very hard dilemma now. I mean, for me, not, of course. But, um, yeah, you know, when... Um, for when years, you're attacked, yeah, for you years, have to do I've been, you have to do. For years, people in Ukraine, at least most of them who are not living in eastern part of the country, were thinking about it only theoretically. And it's very uh, easy to build some idealistic theoretical uh, constructions when you are sitting mm -hmm. in Kiev, like I was sitting uh, in a peaceful city and the war was somewhere there out. Um, and of course, we can say that if there were no arms around, the war would not start anyway. But there were, there are always arms around because uh, that's how humanity lives for many, many, many centuries. And uh, of course, I hope that at some point it will change and there will be some. But I, I also understand that the level of this change should be very radical and very systematic. Otherwise, it won't work. Um, and I hope it, uh, that um, there will be no need in World War Three for this uh, change to come. But uh, from what I see now on the ground, like um, being in the country under attack, it's uh, I'm your I mean mine idealistical constructions they are totally destroyed, and I'm not sure how to rebuild them and how they will look after I will rebuild them in some distant future or not very distant future thank you so much for this for sharing this with us this i think is very interesting important it was a very profound i'd say interview and and discussion and thank you so much for sharing and for offering the time under these circumstances a lot of luck to your husband 
and uh, best of wish in what what can I say it for things to be solved in a peaceful way and who knows who knows maybe there is a brighter future ahead and maybe we'll get the chance to talk again under more positive and optimistic circumstances thank you so much uh, Oksana and to the viewers if you like the conversation and if you feel that you can donate for Eastern European independent journalism please go to our Patreon page patreon.com slash the barricade and to the extent that you can afford please make a one donation thanks again and keep fighting stay healthy and let's hope for a peaceful and better future thank you maria